I next met with Miss Tiffany Richards, and to begin, she presented a 52-year-old man from her practice. So he had been complaining of some low back pain that had progressively gotten worse. Went to the doctor, you know, with standard fare, was given anti-inflammatories, pain didn't get any better, went back to the doctor, and subsequently was found to have a compression fracture. And also found to have not a lot of anemia, but I think his hemoglobin was like in the 12 gram range. And so... He was subsequently sent to an oncologist and had a workup done, was found to have, I think his bone marrow percentage was about 40 to 50% plasma cytosis. He had normal cytogenetics, both on conventional as well as on fish. What kind of work was he doing and what was his sort of home situation? He's married. He has two grown children. He's in business, does consulting work. So when you all first saw him, first of all, his wife was with him. Mm -hmm. And what was his state of mind? Was he out there on the internet reading about all this? Where was he? He is kind of one of these gentlemen that just kind of goes with the flow, so to speak. Doesn't have a lot of anxiety. His wife had a lot of questions, and I think his wife had been doing some reading on the internet. When you first encountered him and you assessed his level of understanding, did he understand that he had a disease with a pretty poor prognosis long-term? We had a discussion about it when he came to us because he initially was treated outside and then didn't have a response and came to see us. And I think he understood it. But again, like he's kind of just goes with the flow. We saw him, you know, about a week ago, and he was just like, so this M protein, what is that again? (laughs) And he's been coming to us for, I think, about nine months now. So he's just kind of one of those people that doesn't worry too much and is like, if you tell me I'm doing okay, then I'm good, and that's all I really need to know. I don't know whether I want his genes or not. (laughs) Maybe. Interesting. So what happened? You said at that point he was diagnosed. And what was the extent of disease that you were able to determine in his bones and elsewhere? He had it mostly in his back. And I think he had some small lesions kind of scattered in the calvarium. And I think he also had some in his humerus. So, you know, pretty much everybody's myeloma is going to get started on systemic therapy. But Mm -hmm. what was your assessment initially in terms of his spine? You mentioned that he had uh, collapsed vertebrae. Was he still having pain? Were you thinking about doing anything local on the spine? So he was having some pain. We sent him to the pain doctor. We got some imaging on him. And the pain doctor wanted to see what would happen once we started systemic therapy to see if he would get some pain relief that way. We didn't really want to hold therapy to have him undergo vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty just because he didn't really have a, he had a little bit of a response to CyberD, but not a great response. And so we felt like we just needed to get him started on different therapy. So he had been started on the outside on CyberD mm-hmm. and didn't respond, which is pretty uncommon. What exactly is CyberD and how did he tolerate it? CyberD is bortezomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone. He did well. He actually did once weekly bortezomib. Cyclophosphamide was given once weekly, and then dex was given once weekly. And he got the bortezomib subcutaneously? Yes, he did get it subcutaneously. And any neuropathy? No, he didn't. 
And so he gets the treatment, and he's not responding based on what? The blood work? Yeah, his myeloma protein was stable. I think it was like around 2.3, which is where it was when he was initially diagnosed. And we repeated a bone marrow biopsy, and the percentage of plasma cells hadn't changed. And he was still having pain? He was still having pain. And you mentioned kyphoplasty and vertebroplasty. What exactly are those procedures? So kyphoplasty involves inserting a balloon TAM into the vertebral body. They inflate the balloon, which adds a little bit of additional vertebral body height. Then they inject a cement into the vertebral body. Nice thing about kyphoplasty is it does restore some of that vertebral body height, whereas vertebroplasty involves just placing the cement into the vertebral body and they don't get any additional height. Our pain doctors usually determine if they're candidate for kyphoplasty versus vertebroplasty, depending on the type of compression fracture and the extent of the fracture. And what fraction of patients get pain relief from these procedures? I'd probably say about 90% of patients have improvement in their pain level. And what about radiation therapy? You know, with a lot of oncology situations, solid tumors, a patient like this would be getting radiation. But what about radiation with myeloma? We generally don't do radiation unless they have core compression or if they have a weight-bearing bone that's at risk for fracture. Just because, you know, we generally get such a quick response with starting systemic therapy. So we try to avoid radiation just for that reason. So this man is young, obviously, and seems like he would be a candidate for the track that would lead to autologous stem cell transplant. But Mm -hmm. Typically, these patients get an induction treatment first. Was that the plan with him to go for transplant? Yes. But he's getting his induction, but he's not responding. So what were your thoughts at that point? So we switched him to bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. He did receive a response. He achieved a PR. And then what happened? Then he went on to transplant. He got standard of caramelphalin. And then... We saw him three months post-transplant, and he was placed on a clinical trial for maintenance therapy with MLN9708 and lenalidomide. So we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but how did he tolerate the transplant? He did really well. When he came back to see us three months after transplant, he was just like, you know, I feel great. It wasn't a problem. And I was like, really? It wasn't a problem? He's like, I had fatigue, but it wasn't too bad. Wow, interesting person. (laughs) At your place, do you do transplants inpatient, outpatient, or both? Both. And what about him? He did his outpatient. Interesting. And after the transplant, what was the assessment of the disease status at that point? So he was still in a PR immediately after transplant, and now he's actually almost in a very good partial remission now. And what's the difference between those two types of states as well as complete response? So partial remission is a 50% reduction in the monoclonal protein in the serum and a 90% reduction in the Benz-Jones. In a very good partial remission is a 90% reduction in the serum monoclonal protein. And then the Benz-Jones needs to be less than 100 milligrams. And then for a patient to be in a complete remission, There should be no measurable paraprotein in the serum or in the urine. And then the immunofixation, which is the most sensitive, one of the most sensitive tests that we have, needs to be negative on two consecutive occasions. And then their bone marrow biopsy needs to also be negative. And globally, about what fraction of patients are in a CR after transplant? 
It ranges between, depending on the study, is about 30 to 40 percent. And you mentioned the question of maintenance, so treatment after transplant, which is often done for a long period of time, as you were talking about earlier. What's your usual approach to maintenance in patients who are not going on trials? So generally, we talk to the patients about the data regarding maintenance therapy. If they have standard risk disease, then we'll usually talk to them about lenalidomide maintenance. If they have high-risk disease, then we usually do consolidation with bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. We used to do it for about four cycles, but recently there was a paper by, I think it was Loniel's the author, coming out of Emory that showed patients who receive VRD consolidation, for, I think they give it for two to three years, and their survival for patients with high-risk disease was pretty impressive. So I think we're going to more of that type of consolidation now. And there's been a lot of debate about this issue of maintenance. Not everybody necessarily uses it all the time, and a lot of people use it selectively. But lenalidomide seems to be, certainly that's where most of the data is. When you're going to treat a patient with lenalidomide maintenance, what are some of the things that you bring up from a patient education perspective? Well, one of the things that, you know, because patients with myeloma are well-versed, they do a lot of reading on the internet about things. So when I talk to them, you know, I go over the data. I tell them what the studies are showing. And if they're obviously not in a complete remission, then we lean a little bit more heavily as far as recommending maintenance therapy. If they're in a complete remission with standard risk disease, then we have a discussion regarding the data, but we're not as enthusiastic about starting maintenance at that point. What do you say about the downside of least lenalidomide maintenance, and what do you do in terms of clotting and thrombosis? So if they're just on lenalidomide alone, then we don't place them on any anticoagulation. We do talk to them, you know, we do see this kind of this diarrhea that emerges once they've been on it for a while. So I have a discussion with that. I do recommend cholestyramine because that seems to work really, really well to help with the diarrhea with that. So I tell them that if they start having diarrhea to let me know and we can certainly get some cholestyramine called into the pharmacy for them. We're obviously going to have a discussion with them regarding the risk of secondary malignancies and MDS. What do you tell them about that? I tell them that, you know, it's less than 5% of patients, that at this point in time, the benefit outweighs the risk, that certainly, you know, we'll be watching their counts and looking for any signs that MDS may be emerging. But overall, the patients, they don't dwell on that, which is somewhat surprising because you'd think that they would. They dwell on more of the fatigue than anything else that they get. You said you don't use anticoagulation. What about mini-dose aspirin? We only do that if we're putting them on it with a steroid. If it's just lenalidomide alone, we don't. If their cardiologist or their primary care doctor is recommending that they be on aspirin, then you know we obviously keep them on that. And when you give lenalidomide maintenance, do you generally use a corticosteroid also? No. And now this patient actually went on maintenance, but as part of a clinical trial, you were talking before about the so-called RVD regimen as consolidation slash maintenance, where you get both lenalidomide and bortezomib. And I guess this trial kind of is along the same line in that they get lenalidomide and a different proteasome inhibitor that's still in development 
the oral agent, MLN9708, I think it's called exazimib mm-hmm. at this point, very similar to bortezomib except oral. How did this man do on the combination, and what have you seen in general with this kind of approach? So he's doing really well. He's not having any problems with their count. Some of the patients on the trial have had some difficulty with their blood counts, with particularly their platelets. But overall, he's tolerating it fine. He has no fatigue. We saw him in the last week or so, and he's like, I'm doing great. I have no problems. And I'm like, really, you have no side effects? He's like, well, maybe a little bit of fatigue, but that's it. So he's doing really, really well. And the thinking here is to continue indefinitely or until progression? Until progression. And I'm curious about, you know, she sounds like a pretty unusual, different person facing this life-threatening disease. What's it been like to deal with him, but also with his spouse? Does she have the same kind of approach? I was even thinking to myself, well, what kind of person would hook up with somebody like that? You know, (laughs) was she the opposite or the same? I think she's almost like... Not quite the opposite, but I don't know. She's kind of almost like in the middle of the road, kind of. Like she wants the information, but I also think she respects that he doesn't really want to know a lot of information. And I think sometimes the caregivers, there's a fine line between trying to get all the information that you need to know, but also respecting that the patient you know, maybe for their own mental health, they don't want to know all the details. And so She will ask questions, and I think she does do some research on the internet. But overall, like now, she doesn't really ask a lot of questions. In the beginning, she did, but now not so much. So I want to ask you about your 60-year-old man you've been treating for 12 years. Amazing in and of itself. I want to focus on the past year when you got the combination of carfilzomib, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone. What are some of the patient education issues you went through with him when he was about to receive that triplet? So carfilzomib is a newer proteasome inhibitor. It's given IV on days 1, 2, 8, 9, and 15, and 16. Pomalidomide is a newer immunomodulatory agent. The pomalidomide seems to have the side effects of both lenalidomide and thalidomide. So whereas I think they get more constipation, they have more fatigue, They can get some dizziness with it. It still has the risk of blood clots, still has the risk of birth defects with it. The carfilzomib has less neuropathy than bortezomib does, although it does have some cardiopulmonary side effects. So it's important that we're educating patients to report any shortness of breath, any worsening swelling. And sometimes if they are at risk for heart disease, it's a good idea to get an echocardiogram prior to starting them on it, just so that you have a baseline of where they are prior to starting it. So for him, he's on low molecular weight heparin because he has had a prior blood clot. And so with the pomalidomide and the dexamethasone, he has at risk for blood clot. So he's actually on anoxaparin for that because he has the risk of the myeloma and then also with the dexamethasone and then the prior history. So he needs a higher level than just aspirin. How do you explain to a patient what an imid is in terms of how it works and what a proteasome inhibitor is? Okay, that's a good question. So for a proteasome inhibitor, the way I explain it to a patient is I, you know, go through the technical, it blocks the proteasome, which the proteasome is responsible for breaking down proteins that the cell produces. But a lot of times that's just going over a patient's heads. They're like, I don't understand. What are you talking about proteins in my cell? 
So actually, one of the doctors I work with, this is what she tells patients. She's like, imagine if you took a bottle of Coca-Cola that had the lid on it, and then you shook it up. And because when you block it, and then you release it, it almost kind of spews everything out of the bottle. So... It's kind of an explanation that they somewhat get that, you know, you have a lot of pressure that's kind of building up and that because of that pressure, then it just kind of causes the cell to be overwhelmed and then it dies. So that's how we explain it to patients. Probably not the best description of what a proteasome inhibitor does, but... it's not bad. I kind of like it. (laughs) They get it. The immunomodulatory agent, I have not found an easy way to explain (laughs) I don't even know exactly how it works. I've been asking people this for years. Yeah. Here's something about the microenvironment of the tumor is the best yeah. I can figure it out. But I, I guess the thought is there may be an angiogenic component. There may be immunologic component. But yeah, it does seem to be a mystery. You mentioned the REMS program. What's mm-hmm. the basis of it and how does it work? The basis for it is vlutamide was originally given to pregnant women in the 1960s to help with nausea. And because of that, they then gave birth to babies with severe, severe birth defects. And so it was pulled off the market, and then it was approved for leprosy. And then we obviously then had it for myeloma. But because of the risk of birth defects, the FDA requires a lot of education and requires patients to use birth control if they are either having intercourse with somebody who's of childbearing age or who's a patient who's still not menopausal. Now, does this apply to men also? It does, if they are having intercourse with women who could get pregnant. And have there been any birth defects reported with any of these agents relating to men being treated? Not that I am aware of. And you kind of alluded to the fact it was a little bit cumbersome. What exactly did they have to do? So if it's a woman, they have to use two forms of birth control. So it's usually like either an oral contraceptive agent or an injectable contraceptive agent and then a barrier method. If they've had a tubal ligation, then they still have to use another form of birth control, which is usually going to be a condom. And then if it's a man, they have to use a condom. And what about the paperwork? How often do they have to do it and what do they do? So they have to take a survey every month. The healthcare provider also has to take a survey every month that says that you've gone over, you know, all the precautions that they can't donate blood. Nobody but them can touch their medication. And this is an online survey? So the patients do it by phone. We can do it online. How long does it take? Well, now that it's online and you can go into the computer and do it, it's a lot quicker Previously, when you had to do it over the phone, that was uh, a little bit more cumbersome. But now I'm usually able to get the surveys done pretty quickly, like in under a minute or two. Right. You mentioned the issue or question about cardiovascular issues with carfilzomib, which, you know, originally we started here about, you know, dyspnea, shortness of breath. The issue was also out on the table about whether the hydration in some way was contributing to that. Was there cardiac dysfunction contributing to that? What have your own observations been? Have you seen dyspnea? Have you seen heart failure? You know, when we initially were doing some of the initial trials, we were seeing a lot of dyspnea in patients having some problems 
related to, I think, fluid overload. And so then when we made some changes and instead of giving the 500 cc fluid bolus, we're only giving 250 cc fluid bolus, we are not seeing nearly the same degree of dyspnea in problems. Now, when you say 500, you're talking about 250 before and 250 after? Right. So what exactly are you doing now? Just the 250 before? Just the 250 before. And you sort of keep that going indefinitely or do you cut back on that? We usually cut back on that after the second cycle. And have you seen what you think was cardiac failure in these patients? You know, we haven't really seen that since we've changed how much fluid they're getting. We have not seen the same degree of cardiac failure that we were seeing. So in the back of my mind, I'm wondering if a lot of it was just the amount of fluid that they were getting. What about the schedule of carfilzomib? Can you talk about what that is and how that affects the patient? It's given twice a week for three weeks on, and it has to be given two days in a row. So it would be given like a Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday. That's definitely more cumbersome for patients. They have to be at the doctor's office more than they had to be with bortezomib, especially since it's two days in a row. And so I think it's a little bit more stressful on patients than, you know, say taking bortezomib, particularly since now with bortezomib, we can give as a subcutaneous injection. So with that, they're kind of in, they're out. And with the carfilzomib, they're in the chair longer. It takes a little bit more time. What about quality of life on carfilzomib? What do you see? I think their quality of life is good. I mean, some patients do have fatigue. Most definitely, I think with all of the therapies for myeloma, I think fatigue is huge. And it was interesting. We had a patient that we saw this week who had received, he had a pretty bad relapse. And so we had given him hypercyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and dexamethasone. And now he's on carfilzomib, pomalidomide, dexes just to maintain them. And I said, which has more fatigue? You know, what was the difference between the two? And he said, I have more fatigue with what I'm on now than I did with the hypercyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and dexamethasone. And I thought that was really interesting because I think sometimes we think how these more intensive regimens are harder for the patient. But I also think that the fatigue level is there every day when you're on something every day, whereas with the hypercyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, they have fatigue for about seven to 10 days, and then they start to feel better for the last two weeks. So this man, how has he done on this combination? Has he had any side effects related to these agents? Yeah, he gets swelling towards the end of the cycle. He does have fatigue. And in fact, when we last saw him with the holidays coming up, he's like, I have a lot of things going on at the holidays and I need to be able to function. And so he wanted a treatment break. And I said, well, that's like six weeks till after the holidays. So I don't think we're going to be able to give you a six-week holiday. We probably could try maintaining you on two of the drugs and see how you do. And so what we told him this week was we'll switch him to pomalidomide dexamethasone for the next month, see how he does. And then when we see him back in four weeks, if his numbers are looking stable, we can give him a two-week break so that over the Christmas holidays, he'll be able to have that time off. His daughter is getting married, and I guess they're introducing her fiancé to the rest of the family, and they're having a big party. And so he really wants to be feeling good during that time. When you do give people a break, how long does it take before the fatigue starts getting better? 
probably about five to seven days that they'll start to feel better. They'll usually say like if particularly if they're on pomalidomide or even with the carfilzomib, that that week off, they start to feel better. And just as they're starting to feel back to their normal self, it's time to start the cycle again. When you're going to use a single agent, commonly one of these two drugs, how do you decide which one first? You mentioned that he had been on an imid, so you wanted to try to change the type of drug. What other factors do you consider in choosing between these two to start? We look at what other comorbidities that they might have, what their disease in general has done. Obviously, for somebody like him, he's had the disease for a long period of time. And so with him, the reason why we chose the pomalidomide and dexamethasone was really, I think he was feeling more tired from the carfilzomib that he noticed that each week after the carfilzomib, he kind of felt worse and worse. And so that's the reason why we went with the pomalidomide with him rather than the carfilzomib. And so sometimes it's just trying to tease out which drug is causing the worst side effects. Let's talk about your 83-year-old patient. She's an 83-year-old lady who's had myeloma for about 10 years. We had placed her on lenalidomide with dexamethasone. And she was on an aspirin, and then she developed atrial fibrillation, and so she was on warfarin for that. And more recently, she had a partial remission, which for her was okay. She didn't have bone disease. And so sometimes it's just trying to balance these older, frail patients with managing their disease. And so she did really well. She comes in every month and I'm like, how are you doing? She's like, I'm fine. I have no problems. And I'm like, really? Like nothing? (laughs) And so recently, though, we took her off therapy because she fell and she hit her head and developed a subdural bleed. And so when she recovered from that, we took her off lenalidomide. And we've just been maintaining her now on dexamethasone four days a month. And that's maintaining her. Her quality of life is good. And she feels good. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach the issue of bone and bisphosphonate use in these patients? So if they have bone disease, we definitely recommend bisphosphonate therapy. They need to see a dentist first just because of the risk of the osteonecrosis of the jaw. So we want to make sure that their teeth are in good repair and that they don't need any dental extractions or invasive dental work before we initiate bisphosphonates. Once they receive dental clearance, we initiate them on either zolindronic acid or pomidronate once a month. We generally do it once a month for two years, although I think there's some debate as far as how long we need to be doing bisphosphonate therapy. If we need to do it indefinitely, some people go to every three months, even though there's not really a lot of data for that. So I think there's a lot of different practices in the myeloma community as far as bisphosphonate therapy right now. You mentioned checking the teeth and you know this issue of osteonecrosis of the jaw. I don't know how many cases of that you've seen, but what typically occurs with these patients? So generally, they'll complain of pain to the gum area. And then when you look at their gum area, you'll see some exposed bone. You'll actually see the bone exposed. And then if it's infected, they can get a very foul odor that comes from their mouth. 
and we've seen that. It has a very distinct smell, actually. So if I see a new patient and they've had prior treatment and they've had prior bisphosphonate therapy, I could almost, you know, guarantee that if that smell is in the room, that they have osteonecrosis of the jaw even before I look in their mouth. And how are these patients managed? So generally our dentist will give them antibiotic and then take them off the bisphosphonate and then just monitor it over, you know, they'll see them like every month initially until they get some healing. And how many cases have you seen, for example, you have a very busy center over the past year? Probably in the last year, maybe two. Not a lot. 